I would like to start this morning by reading a verse from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says this, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. This little phrase speaks volumes of theology. I mean, we are prone to faithlessness. I mean, it's our tendency. It's our tendency to lose sight of God, to have doubts of our souls, and to fail in our faithfulness to the Lord. I mean, in fact, if you think about the Bible. The Bible is not a storybook of just men who are strong in and of themselves and who conquer great things because they were great. The Bible is full of faithless people who, oops, who God did wondrous things through. I mean, think about Noah. Noah was a man, and the Bible is called blameless. And yet he erred into drunkenness. Abraham, noted as the father of faith, he didn't trust God, so he lied and deceived some of the Egyptian kings and rulers. Think about Moses. God's chosen redeemer to pull the people out from slavery. He had his times of doubt and disobedience to the Lord. How about David? The man after God's own heart. Surely he would be strong and stand. No, he was faithless. He was a murderer and adulterer. In fact, that is the message of the Bible. The Bible has some pretty shady creatures in it. Some shady people. Some sinful people that God used through His power. And if we are faithless, God remains faithful. Even this morning in our prayer time. Boy, if you're not coming to prayer time, I would encourage you to come to a prayer time. It starts at 8.45. We pray until 9.30. It's really, I think, the cornerstone of the church. It really shows what the church is about. If you come, I invite you there. We read Nehemiah chapter 9 that talked about the people confessing their sin before the Lord. And the story was the same. They did wickedly, but God remained faithful. Oh, certainly He punished them in their wickedness, but He remained faithful to His covenant. They turned back in their wickedness, but God remained faithful. They, they went in their wickedness, and then God punished them, and then they called the Lord, and God brought them back because God is faithful. He cannot deny Himself. In fact, listen to this verse from, from Nehemiah chapter 9. You have dealt faithfully but we have acted wickedly. That is the story of the Bible. We are prone to faithlessness. One of the songs we love to sing says this very thing. It says this, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know how it goes on? Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The only hope that we have in this life is the faithfulness of God to help us. It's not our own strength because we prone to faithlessness. And this contrast is key. Though we are faithless, God is faithful. As Paul said, He cannot deny Himself. As Malachi said, He doesn't change. As Moses experienced, God has always been and God always will be. How many verses in the Bible say this? That His loving kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations. 
God's faithfulness extends throughout all generations. The Lord's faithful to His promises. He's faithful to His people. He's faithful to His purpose, which is to bring glory to Himself. In fact, think about how these two things come together. Our faithlessness and God's faithfulness. We sung this, how firm a foundation, right? Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. That's the message of the Bible. is that God is the one who will strengthen and help and cause us to stand. And these two contrasts between the unfaithfulness of ourselves and the faithfulness of God are nowhere better illustrated than in our text this morning. I invite you to open to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be looking at verses 31 through verse 46. And we'll see the unfaithfulness of the disciples contrasted with the faithfulness of Jesus. You know, there's a saying that says, when the going gets tough, it's the tough will get going. And when the going got tough for these disciples, they fell away. But when the going got tough for Jesus, He persevered until the end. And thus, deeming Himself worthy for us to look to for strength and help in time of need. I want to read verses 31 to 46. It says, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of Me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if it cannot pass away until, unless I drink it, Thy will be done. And again He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then He came to the disciples and He said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Really, see two contrasts. The disciples will fall away, and Jesus, even in utter anguish and difficulty, remained faithful to the Lord. 
My outline this morning is simple. We are faithless. He remains faithful. Let's look at this first point. We are faithless. Verses 31 through 35. We see Jesus telling His disciples that all fall away from following Him. Right? They'll be faithless is what He's saying. It's what He says in verse 31, right? You will all fall away because of Me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, you've got to catch this in light of the, the greater context of these words. These disciples had heard of His upcoming death. Jesus had told them on several occasions that He was going to go to Jerusalem and die. In fact, Matthew records for us four separate occasions in which Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. Four times Matthew records that for us. And, you know, I think Jesus probably said it to them more than that. Matthew just gives us an insight of how repetitive his statements were to us. They knew, at least in their heads, that Jesus would be killed in Jerusalem, but perhaps it never sank in. These disciples, we saw several weeks ago, had heard that there was one who was going to betray him. That was at the Lord's Supper. And when they heard that, each one of them said, Surely not I, Lord. You can see that in verse 22. It says, Each one began to say, Surely not I. Not I. I wouldn't ever betray you, Jesus. They all thought that they could stand. None of them could even fathom the thought that they would not stand with Jesus. And now, for the first time, they hear that none of them would remain faithful to the Lord. One would betray Him, but eleven would fall away from following Him. When the shepherd would be struck down, the sheep would be scattered. When Jesus would be crucified, every single one of His disciples, these eleven anyway, would be nowhere in sight. In His hour of greatest need, they would all fail. They would all fall away. Now, as difficult as it was for them to believe that one would betray them, likewise, it was much more difficult even to see that all of the disciples would betray Jesus. In fact, we get an insight into Peter's thinking in verse 33. Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter knew that there was no way that he was going to betray Jesus. Peter knew that there's no way that he was going to be unfaithful to his Lord. But I find it interesting that Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And that's what he says in verse 34. Truly I say to you that this very night, before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Now when Jesus told him this, it was already evening. Jerusalem at that time, the, the cocks generally crowed between 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the morning. Kind of that's the cock crowing time. And so here's going to be, in a few hours, he's saying, you know what, just in a very few hours, Peter, you're going to fall away. And still clueless of what Jesus was saying, Peter said, no, 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 even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. We can admire his zeal. We can admire his boldness. He was ready and willing to be a martyr for the cause of Jesus. That is commendable and we need to admire that. But, sadly, Peter did this very thing he said he wouldn't do. Rather than standing firm, Peter wilted the day of his trial like a flower in the heat of the day. 
are like our grass that's turned brown because the rain hasn't come in recent weeks. We get to the end of chapter 26, right? We'll see that very same thing that Jesus predicted come to pass. Look at verses 69 through 75. You see, even see there, he was in a courtyard and a servant girl said, Hey, you're with Jesus, right? You're from Galilee. He said, No. He kind of left. And then someone else, another girl, said, This man, who's Jesus? And he said, No, no, he denied it. Then another bystander came out, Surely you're one of them. He said, No, 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 no. I swear, I do not know him. And immediately, he denied him, exactly like Jesus had said would take place. But you know what? Peter wasn't the only one who protested at what Jesus said. Look at the end of verse 35. This is exactly like what took place at the Lord's Supper. All the disciples said the same thing too. Matthew gives us the insight into Peter. Maybe he was the boldest of all of them in affirming their commitment to be faithful to Jesus, but each of them were saying, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So Matthew said that. Even if I have to die with you, I will not be unfaithful. And and Thaddeus said that. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. Bartholomew and Thomas, and you go through all of the disciples. They all said the same thing. They were telling Jesus, hey, listen, we're not a band of half-hearted followers. Jesus, we are committed to your cause. We are sold out to following you, Jesus. Listen to what we said. We will be faithful to you until our dying days. They weren't. As much as their profession with their mouth was, their life didn't back it up. All of them fell away. In fact, look at the end of verse 56. It says there, All the disciples left him and fled. We'll look at that next week. It's the arrest of Jesus, right? When the Romans came with swords and clubs. And maybe when these disciples saw the swords and clubs, they said, hey, this isn't a video game anymore. This isn't a movie. This is the real deal. I mean, those clubs, they swing them, they would hurt. The day of reckoning's at hand. The Romans finally caught Jesus. I'm out of here. And they, perhaps, even after they reflect on that, they might have been surprised. I thought I'd never deny Jesus, but I did. But you know what? It didn't deny, didn't surprise Jesus at all. It was something that Jesus knew would take place. Now, his foreknowledge knew it. He certainly knew what was going to happen. But that's not why Jesus knew it would take place. He knew it because it was written. Look what he says there. He says, verse 31, It is written. And then he quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. If he wanted to, he says, let me prove it to you. And he could have walked down to the temple, pulled out a scroll and scroll over to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. and said, look here, guys, read it. It's written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's got to take place because it was written. Now, if you go back and read Zechariah chapter 13, you'll see that it's a prophecy in the Old Testament that describes how when the true shepherd of Israel is struck down. He's struck down with the purpose that the sheep will scatter. And then in Zechariah, it says that some of them will return. Two-thirds of them will be destroyed, but a third of them will come back. Though they're all scattered, Zechariah promises a return. When their trial, in their difficulties, this third of the people cry out and they call out to the Lord. They call upon the name of the Lord. They'll be saved from their affliction. You can see that in Zechariah 13, verse 9. And that's the same true of the disciples. Though they fell down and were scattered, there came a point where they repented of their desertion 
They called upon the name of Jesus and were restored. Aren't you thankful for the restoration? In fact, that's what Jesus alludes to in verse 32 when he talks about his resurrection. After I've been raised, I'll go before you into Galilee. This was the rendezvous point after his resurrection. It's going to be in Galilee. He knew that just as the disciples fell away, he'd be in Galilee, meet them, and they would come back together. He'd restore them for ministry. In fact, even at the end of Matthew, we see in chapter 28, verse 10, the women who found Jesus at the tomb were told by Jesus, go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. And it's there that that the 40 days of Jesus with his disciples talking to them and working through things about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and and how it all works out. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1. About he was commissioning them and sending them and promising, you're going to receive power to be great witnesses by the Holy Spirit when it comes upon you. And you'll go to Jerusalem and Judea and to the remotest parts of the earth. Right? He's recommissioning them. He's reestablishing them. John, in John chapter 21, talks about how Peter was recommissioned as well. And once restored, these disciples went out proclaiming the gospel and changed the course of the world. They changed it all. And though these 11 disciples would flee from Jesus, it would refine them and it would test them for a greater good. I want to just stop here, pause a little bit for two lessons we can learn from these disciples. One is this. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I mean, it doesn't get much bolder than Peter said in verse 35. He wasn't attempting to deceive. He wasn't trying to play the hypocrite. It was his deep down part of his body, of his soul, that said, I'm going to stand firm. Even if I have to die with you, I'm not going to deny you. He thought he could stand. You have to take heed lest he fall. And I just ask you, how many times have you given your promise to the Lord that you'll do something only to regret later that you lacked the strength or lacked the courage to carry it out? I think even in my own life, Lacking boldness in evangelism. God, I, I want to be a pledge. I'll be a bold witness for you. And then having that opportunity and failing and falling. I, I think about how many things I have preached and yet failed to do. I mean, I think about how my prayer life. God, I want to be a man of prayer. And then the schedule of my day just pushes prayer out. I don't know how many times I've talked to Doug Sosnowski about wanting to finish my sermon on Friday. So I can be with the people at church on Saturday. How many times have I talked to you about that, Doug? I've failed. I'm weak. And so are you. Where the truth be known, many times we've promised to the Lord and been unfaithful in that. at that. The hour of testing has come. We've lacked courage to carry through. And I just say, be warned that pride comes before the fall. And the one who thinks he stands comes before the one actually falls. That's what we ought to see from the disciples here. We also ought to see that power is perfected in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. All of these disciples prove themselves to be weak. But you know what? That is the very characteristic that God will bless. Weakness. In fact, Isaiah 66, 
says this, To this one I will look. Do you know who, the one to whom God looks upon with favor? Do you know what it says? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, the one who is, is low and broken of spirit and just trembles at the word of God and says, God, I, I can't do it. That's the one that God looks with favor upon. And as these disciples learned the lesson of humility and weakness, God then used that to work mightily through them. It's not their own strength. It's the Lord working through them. And you read through Acts, and they do amazing things. I mean, think about when a lame man can ask Peter for something. He said, I don't have anything, silver, gold. Listen, but what I do have, I'm going to give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Through Jesus Christ, through the power of him, walk. And he walked. Through Jerusalem in an uproar. Saw many people converted because of that. It wasn't his strength. It was what Jesus had given me. I just give it to you. It's the strength. The religious leaders were amazed at the boldness of the apostles. Not because of their education, their training, but because they were with Jesus. See, it was the power of Jesus working through them. When they were flogged for preaching the gospel, they went their way rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And the only way you rejoice when you're suffering like that is because supernatural power is working within you. And I believe that to read through Acts, the extraordinary power came about because of the firsthand experience with their own weakness. And when you know you're weak, you don't trust yourself. Rather, you trust the power of Christ within you. And so I encourage you, church family, I exhort you, embrace your weaknesses. Because those are the very things that will draw you to God. Paul told Timothy to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? It means be strong in trusting in God's grace to work through you. I mean, we sang this today. Jesus, you're my firm foundation. I know I can stand secure, right? Boldly, like Peter, I know that I can stand secure. Why? Because I put my trust in your holy word. That's the only way you'll ever stand. When you've been beaten down to show your weakness, it's only then you'll fully realize how perfect His strength is. You need to realize that we are faithless, just like these disciples. But now let's turn our attention, verse 36 through 46, that He remains faithful. He remains faithful. Verse 36 takes us to a place called Gethsemane. I was corrected by my wife this week. For years I've said Gethsemane. Maybe you don't have, it's Gethsemane, right? Gethsemane means oil press. It was a garden where there were much olive trees around. Maybe there was a press there to, to squeeze out the juice from the olives. Very good picture of what's going to take place with Jesus in these verses, actually. It's on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. The only thing that separated it from Jerusalem was the Kidron Valley, which, read, which ran between them. Just a, a little dip of a hill. Up to Jerusalem. It was a place where Jesus often would retire with his disciples. John 18, verse 2 tells us that. In fact, that gives you the explanation of how it is that Judas could lead a whole band of Roman soldiers to Jesus in the garden at night. He knew right where he was. And catch this Jesus knew right where Judas knew that he was, and he stayed there. We'll talk more about that next week when he talk about his arrest. 
But Jesus arrived there accompanied by 11 of his disciples. Of course, Judas had gone away. He's betraying him. To eight of them, he said in verse 36, You sit here while I go over there and pray. We don't know where here was. You know, sometimes our kids are, so should I go here or there? Should I take this or that? And I say, yeah, take this or that. Go there or there. We don't know. It was here to stay. I think maybe it was on the, the outer skirts of the garden. And Jesus then took three of his most precious disciples, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and he brought them closer to be with him. Right? And then these three, Jesus revealed the state of his soul, saying in verse 38, now, now these are dark words, all right? you got to catch the thrust of this. He says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. At this point in the life of Jesus, the reality of His crucifixion was sinking into His thoughts. I mean, Jesus was destined to die upon the cross. Jesus knew clearly for years what His future held. In fact, He knew from eternity past that he was going to come into time and die upon the cross. So it didn't take Jesus by surprise. But now as the hours drew near, the day of reckoning was at hand. And and it's one thing, see, for a dreaded event to be far off in the future. Maybe you've known of that a little bit. You know, some, some events way off in the future and you like barely think about it. But when it starts coming closer and closer and closer, you start dreading it. As a pastor, I know of difficult things I've needed to do, difficult decisions to make, difficult conversations to have with people. And I know that a week off or a month off, hey, not a problem. But when I awake that morning of something that I, I know I need to do, but it's hard to do, my stomach, kids, is filled with what? What's in my stomach? Butterflies are in my stomach, and I'm stirred and agitated a little bit, and I'm getting nervous a little bit. And here's Jesus, right, getting away. He knows he's dying, but here he is. He's just a few hours away. In fact, his arrest is right at hand. He's maybe two hours from his arrest, maybe three hours from being arrested and beginning to taste of this terrible cup of the wrath of God. He said, my soul is deeply grieved. He knew his hour had come. He knew his life would soon be over. And he knew that he was about to experience some of the greatest suffering that ever took place or ever would take place. And as Jesus looked forward to this, he said he was deeply grieved. In fact, Luke tells us that the stress was so great upon him that he sweat blood. Blood coming from his forehead and from his face. He was so distressed. I want you to think about how Jesus was doing. He wasn't doing well. The situation weighed heavily upon his heart. He was greatly distressed, even to the point of death. I believe this is what this means. Jesus said that he would die from grief apart from the sustaining grace of God. The pressure was so heavy upon him that he might never make it to the cross. He might die beforehand. And thus he wanted to pray. At the end of verse 38, he tells his disciples, he says this, Remain here and keep watch with me. I think in other words, he's saying here, Let me be alone. 
And if anyone wants to talk to me, you know, just just hold them for a little bit. You know, it's like the secretary. Talk to the secretary. The pastor's busy right now. Just hold it for a little bit. Let me go and let me just pray before the Lord. I need some time to deal with my troubled soul. Now think about the disciples at this point. I mean, Jesus had always been the courageous leader. When they were fearful, Jesus always stood firm. And here Jesus like appears to be be like vulnerable. When opposition used to come, Jesus stood as a rock. Jesus was Brett Favre in the huddle. Okay, guys, I know we're down seven. And I know there's a minute 30 on the clock. And I know we're on our own five. But listen, we're going to score a touchdown. We're going to go back and win this game. Let's go. Instead, Jesus was in the, the huddle saying this. He was Bob Avellini, if you remember the old Bears quarterback. Oh, we're in trouble. There's, we're down seven. Minute 30 on the clock. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to take this, guys. You know, he's shaking a little bit. And what kind of confidence is that? These disciples must have been shaken to see how devastating this was. They began to see the severity of the moment. If this is shaking Jesus to the core of his soul, what's it going to do to us? Verse 39, we see Jesus going beyond them, falling on his face, and praying. Here's his prayer. He says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Listen, here's the great point. Though Jesus was shaken, and though in his humanity he was disturbed, yet, you know what? He stood firm. He didn't fall away. The cup he talks about here is clearly symbolic of the suffering of the wrath of God. Many, up to 15 different passages speak of the cup of God's wrath in the Old Testament. And really, at this moment, right, you need to realize what Jesus is talking about here. Upon the cross, Jesus wasn't simply facing his own death. You know that Jesus was facing a billion deaths. You know, from time to time, I hear there stories come across the newswire of a mass murderer who gets his day in court. You know, in cold blood, the, the testimony of the court clearly explains how he, beyond a reasonable doubt, how he murdered four people in a night of rage. And as clearly he was guilty, he gets sentenced. But due to a particular state, he can't be sentenced to death because they have rules against the death penalty in some states. So he gets four life sentences. How that works, I don't know, okay? But it does communicate well that this man's crime was so bad, he deserves to serve life in prison, life in prison, life in prison, life in prison. That's how bad the murder was. And yet when Jesus suffered on the cross, he suffered death for everyone who would believe in him. We don't know how many people this is. I looked up, there are two billion people today who are outward professing Christians are involved in some kind of Christian church. Two billion people. I'm thinking, well, there's lots of false professors there, certainly. But, you know, there have been billions of people in the past. And so I just throw out the number billion of followers of Christ someday that would be with him in the throne of grace. Maybe hundreds of millions. I don't know. I'm just trying to give you a sense of how bad it was what Jesus did. Jesus died a billion deaths on the cross because he suffered for your sin and for mine. Upon the cross. He took the punishment that you deserved. 
You deserve to die. And so Jesus died in our place. For every single one of us who call upon the name of Christ, He died for us. And that caused Him some anxiety. It caused me much. I mean, think about Peter. Peter says, if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And what Peter, what Jesus have to say, well, if I have to die a billion times, I won't deny you. And Jesus suffered a billion deaths when Peter wouldn't even suffer one death. Kind of shows you how huge the difficulty was that Jesus faced and how faithful he was and how little a difficulty Peter faced and how faithless he was. And it caused him much anxiety. And in his humanness, he was looking for a way out. He knew that there was no other way but the cross. He told his disciples he's going to die by crucifixion. But so distressed he was at the incredible suffering he would experience that he pleaded with the Father for another way. Maybe there was something he was missing. He didn't know. I mean, catch this, right? He's praying for the impossible. He's praying against the will of God. If you call me a heretic with that, you've got to deal with the text. That's what it is. He's saying, if it's possible, let it pass from me. Praying for the impossible. In fact, even in one of the accounts, he says, I know that all things are possible with thee. Let this cup pass. And yet, though through it all, though he prayed for the impossible... He entrusts himself to the will of the Father, and this is how he stood firm. Those famous words, yet not as I will, but as you will, we are given an example how we ought to face our trials. Here Jesus was hours away from being mocked, being beaten, being blindfolded by soldiers and hit in the face, perhaps. Say, oh, prophesy who hit you now, Jesus. He was hours away from being blasphemed and worst of all, hours away from being abandoned by God Himself and yet through it all, Jesus gave Himself over to the will of the Father. He remained faithful. Not as I will, but as you will. And I think that what Jesus prayed here gives us great application. When difficulties come in your life, plead to God for a way out. Pray for a solution that you can't see. And I would encourage you even to pray the impossible. Pray for some miraculous healing. Pray for some repentance. Pray for a change in heart in someone. And yet at the end of it though, pray like Jesus said, yet not as I will, but as you will. And completely entrust yourself to His will. You may not be thrilled with His will. You may not be excited about His will. It may cause you much pain and hurt and distress. But listen... To be faithful, you need to accept His will. You need to embrace His will and realize at the end of the day that God's will is worth any difficulties that you experience while going through trials. And you know what? That was true of Jesus. Jesus understood that doing the will of God was worth every bit of suffering that it took. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. It was the joy of getting on the other side of the cross. It was the joy of sitting at his father's right hand. Of hearing, well done, my faithful son. Of being exalted as the king of the universe. He saw that and he said, this suffering is worth it all. And you will be more joyful in suffering for the will of God than you will be being outside of the will of God because of your unfaithfulness. That will always lead to pain and distress. 
God's will is always better than the sufferings you endure. Paul said it in Romans 8. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. The suffering now, you can't even compare it to the glory later. So suffer now because the glory is coming. Paul wrote in another place how we have momentary light affliction which is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So church family, I encourage you to be like Jesus and throw yourself upon the kind will of God and trust Him even in the direst and most difficult of circumstances. This is the dark night of the soul for Jesus. And you very well may be experiencing now or may experiencing it someday, a dark night of your soul. And when you do, pray. Throw yourself upon Jesus. I think about a great historical example of this. I, I thought about Martin Luther. He did this very thing. Martin Luther, on April 17, 1521, was summoned to stand before Charles, the Holy Roman Empire, accused of heresy that would bring forth a sentence of death. He was asked to recant of his writings. And you know what? He faltered a bit. He said, I'm only monk. And give me a day. After discussion, they gave him a day. They left him in his own room that has been called Martin Luther's Gethsemane. While in that room, he penned a prayer. I want to read it for you because it puts forth what I would encourage you to do in the day in which you face a trial like Jesus Though Jesus' trial is far bigger than any trial we'll face. Here's what what he wrote. O God, Almighty God, everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up, and how small is my faith in Thee. O the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan, if I am to depend upon any strength of this world, all is over. The knell is struck. Sentence is gone forth. O God, O God, though Thou, my God, help me against all wisdom of the world, do this, I beseech Thee. Thou shouldest do this by Thine own mighty power. The work is not mine, but Thine. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace. But the cause is Thine, and it is righteous and everlasting. O Lord, help me. O faithful and unchangeable God, I lean not upon man. It were vain. Whatever is of man is tottering. Whatever proceeds from him must fail. My God, my God, dost thou not hear? My God, art thou no longer living? Nay, thou canst not die. Thou dost but hide thyself. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, God, accomplish thine own will. Forsake me not. For the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, and my stronghold. Lord, where art thou? My God, where art thou? Come, I pray thee, I am ready. Behold, me prepared to lay down my life for thy truth, suffering like a lamb. For the cause is holy, it is thine own. I will not let thee go, no, nor yet for all eternity. And though the world should be thronged with devils in this body, which is the work of thine hand, should be cast forth, trodden underfoot, and cut in pieces, consumed to ashes. My soul is thine. Yes, I have thine own word to assure me of it. My soul belongs to thee and will abide with thee forever. Amen. O God, send help. Amen. That was Luther's Gethsemane. 
And the very next day, you know what happened? The Lord strengthened Martin Luther to stand before the whole established church at that time and said, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. Amen. Did Martin Luther do that by his own strength? He faltered the day earlier. He spent his night in Gethsemane and came out bold like a lion. And in your greatest hour of need, church family, cry out to the Lord for help and He'll strengthen you to accomplish His will despite the difficulties that lie in your way. In fact, this is the glorious news of Jesus that since He stood firm in a trial which will far surpass any trial that any of us will ever encounter... He knows our weaknesses and we can look to Him. Hebrews 2.18 Since He Himself was tempted in that which He suffered, He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Since He Himself was tempted in that which He suffered, He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In the midst of trial, Jesus can come and help us. That's the point of Hebrews 2.18. The point of this passage is that Jesus remained faithful. We can trust Him. We can follow His example. He's able to come to our aid. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says the same thing. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? That's the passage. That's the application for us. Jesus remained faithful in His trial. We ought to look to Him. Let's get back to our text. Jesus finishing His prayer. We see verse 40. Coming to the disciples, finding them sleeping. (laughs) Just like us. You ever fallen asleep praying? Yvonne and I were praying together this week over some circumstances, and I fell asleep. I'm just like the disciples. Earlier, Jesus told them in verse 38... Keep watch with me. But they failed. I mean, time and time through here. Yeah, I've really not even mentioned their their failure to pray, but this comes back to our first point. They were faithless. Jesus was here in the hour of greatest need, being left alone by his uncaring disciples. A true friend can stay awake. Right? He'll grab a mountain dew or something. Right? They'll they'll stay up talking. I mean, here was three disciples that Jesus says to stay awake. You know, let's talk about some things. Let's pray together. Let's, you know, oh, you're starting to not asleep. You know, bonk them on the head and wake them up. Hey, come on, wake up. You know, splash some water. They could have helped each other, but instead, what they do? They were weak. They were faithless. Jesus was faithful. And so Jesus here rebukes them, warns warns them, and even gives them excuse for why they were so weak. He said, so you men could not keep watch with me for an hour. That's a rebuke. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. That's a warning. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's an excuse. Jesus said, listen, I've been off praying for an hour, and an hour is really not that long, disciples. You should have been able to stay awake for an hour, 
But I know your frailty and I know you're weak and I'm mindful that you're but dust. But here, listen, this will help you. Pray that you might be vigilant and stay awake at this most crucial hour. That's what he's saying. Have you tried to pray for an hour? You ever tried? I know one of the best classes I had at seminary. I mean, I can think about all my classes, learn a lot of theology. Probably the best class I had was a class on prayer. The assignment, pray every day for an hour. Pray every day for an hour. And read like a little little book. And write a little paper. But primarily, it's like an hour of homework every, every day. It's difficult, but with a bit of practice you can do. I read the story this week of J. Sidlow Baxter, who was a pastor in the early 1900s. He died, I think, in 1999. And uh, he knew the battle of praying. He spoke one time of the battle that raged in his mind. The Spirit of God called him to pray. But another voice within his head was telling him how impractical it was to pray. His intellect wanted to pray, but his emotions didn't. And so in bunionish language, here's what he said. He said, As never before, my will and I stood face to face. I asked my will the straight question, Will, are you ready for an hour of prayer? Will answered, Here I am. I'm quite ready if you are. So Will and I linked arms and turned to go for our time of prayer. At once, all the emotions began pulling the other way and protesting, We're not coming! I saw Will stagger a bit, so I asked, Can you stick it out, Will? And Will replied, Yes, if you can. Yes, if you can. So Will went, and we got down to prayer, dragging those wriggling, obstreperous emotions with us. It was a struggle all the way. At one point, when Will and I were in the middle of an earnest intercession, I suddenly found one of those traitorous emotions had snared my imagination, run off to the golf course. And it was all I could do to drag the wicked rascal back. A bit later, I found another of the emotions had sneaked away with some off-guard thoughts and was in the pulpit two days ahead of schedule preaching a sermon I'm not yet prepared. At the end of that hour, if you'd asked me, Have you had a good time? I would have replied, no. It has been a wearying wrestle with contrary emotions and a truant imagination from beginning to end. What is more, the battle with the emotions continued for between two and three weeks. And if you asked me at the end of that period, have you had a good time in your daily praying? I would have had to confess, no. At times it seemed as though the heavens were brass. God too distant to hear the Lord Jesus strangely aloof and prayer accomplishing nothing. Yet something was happening. For one thing, Will and I really taught the emotions that we were completely independent of them. Also one morning, about two weeks after the contest began, just when Will and I were going for another time of prayer, I overheard one of the emotions whisper to the other, Come on, you guys. It's no use wasting any more time resisting. They'll go just the same. That morning, for the first time, even though the emotions were still suddenly uncooperative. They were at least quiescent, which allowed Will and me to get on with prayer undistracted. And then another couple weeks later, what do you think happened during one of our prayer times when Will and I were no more thinking of the emotions than the man in the moon? One of the most vigorous of the emotions unexpectedly sprang up and shouted, Hallelujah! At which the other emotions exclaimed, Amen! And for the first time, the whole of my being, intellect, will, and emotions was united in one coordinated prayer operation we all have need to learn from Mr. Baxter the disciples had a great need to learn this lesson the disciples needed to have a talk with Will and say Will we need to be about praying 
We need to pray that we might not fail, just as Jesus said. And I just say here, it's interesting that when Jesus experienced the great problems in his life, what was his solution? He prayed. And when the disciples were facing great temptation, what did Jesus tell them to do? Pray. It's what Jesus modeled, what he told his apostles, and I think that's the solution probably to the greatest problems that you have, is to pray. If the most greatest trial of all time was conquered by prayer, why do we think that there is a lesser solution to a lesser problem? Well, let's look at verse 42 as we try to finish this up. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, Thy will be done. Now, we don't know how long he prayed the second time. I'm guessing probably an hour, like the first time. The point of his prayer was exactly the same as the first time. Referring to the cup, he's referring to drinking. Rather than saying, Not as I will, but as you will, he says, Just your will be done. Again, he prays the same thing. He prays for the impossible and resigns himself to the will of the Father. And just like happened before, the disciples were sleeping again. Verse 43. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Matthew doesn't record it, but Mark does. Jesus went back and awakened these disciples again, confronted with their weakness and said, Well, what's up? And they said, They did not know how to answer him, is what Mark says. Jesus was fully aware of what's taken place, faithfully praying for the Lord's strength. Contrast to these disciples who couldn't even lift an ounce. I think that's how much your eyelids weigh. Maybe an ounce. They weren't even that strong. And Jesus had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he was enduring. And they couldn't even lift an ounce. And the whole cycle gets repeated again in verse 44. He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, we don't know this third time what he prayed, but certainly he prayed the same thing again. Father, I know that you can do all things. And the thought of going through these things are killing me, O Lord. I know that you're concerned with your son. In fact, Mark says when he prayed, he, he prayed, Abba, Father. Like, Daddy, Daddy, I know you're concerned with me. So would you please help me? Is there any way out of this? But I'm committed to your will. Pray that again and again and again, three times. Now, have you ever thought, how is it that the disciples knew what Jesus prayed? I mean, Matthew is one of the disciples, but where is Matthew. Matthew's like way out on the outer side of the garden. But how did even Peter know? Peter was sleeping. How'd they know? I think there are really two ways to describe this. Let me read a verse in first in Hebrews chapter five, verse seven that explains this. This writer gives us insight into his prayer. He said, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Let me read that again. Think about the characteristic of the prayers of Jesus. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. 
And he was heard because of his piety. He's describing a passionate, repeated prayer that was heard by God. So how did the disciples know? Well, in some sense, I think they probably asked him later during this 40 days of time where they're teaching, Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God. What did you pray in Gethsemane? What did you pray when things are really difficult? He said, here's what I prayed. It was so difficult. Father, can you remove this from me? But I'm committed to his will. Or, I think this is probably as likely as anything, they could have heard him. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, that he was offering his supplications with loud crying. So you know how he prayed this? He prayed it, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If you are ever in doubt about the appropriateness of passionate prayer, may this rid all your doubts. We ought to pray passionately. We ought to pray more passionately than we do, even those of you who are involved in our our prayer service at the beginning of the morning, Sunday mornings. What about repeatedly? You ever doubt whether you should pray for something again and again and again and again and again and again? May this passage totally rid that from you. We should pray for it repeatedly again and again and again. Are you ever in doubt as to unanswered prayer? May this text never put you in doubt again. Hebrews said that Jesus was heard by God because of His piety. If you're walking rightly with the Lord, you have every reason to trust that He's going to hear you. If you're walking unrightly, it may not. It says in Psalm 66, verse 18, If I desire wickedness in my heart, O Lord, you will not hear. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, it speaks about if a husband is not living appropriately as a wife, his prayers will be hindered. If you're ungodly and unrighteous, God won't hear your prayers. But if you're walking purely with the Lord and seeking His will and praying Him, He will hear. But you know what? He might not answer your prayer like you want. So I think about this. It, how is it that God heard the prayers of Jesus but let Him suffer upon the cross? You know what? I think it's a little bit like Paul. Remember Paul? He had a thorn in his flesh. And how many times did Paul pray that the Lord remove it? Three times. How many times did Jesus pray? Three times. And how many times did God say no to Paul? Three times. How many times did God say no to Jesus? Three times. And what was the answer to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. Says through your weakness that Christ can be glorified. So I'll take that. I think the same message came to Jesus. Power is perfected in weakness, Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, when you read this narrative, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. I think the angel was whispering in his ear, Jesus, His grace is sufficient for you. Trust Him. Stand firm. His grace is sufficient. And Jesus did this very thing. He trusted in the Lord And the grace of God was sufficient in the life of Jesus Christ. We see abundant grace poured out upon Him who was faithful until the end and died a billion deaths upon the cross. Well, this is the message of the text. This is the message of the Bible. In ourselves we're weak, but we have a great Savior who remains faithful. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. What a glorious Savior we can cry out to and call out to. Let's close our time in a a word of prayer.
Lord, this passage isn't really about prayer. It's about Christ Jesus standing firm when the world deserted Him. His friends deserted Him. And even you, another chapter would desert Him as you poured out your wrath upon Him. And yet, O oh Lord, He is our model. He is our example. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one worthy to be able to look towards. He was the one who was obedient to the point of death. He was the one who learned obedience through His sufferings. He is the one to whom we can look. And so, Lord, I would pray that at Rock Valley Bible Church, the difficulties that come our way, may we look to Jesus. As we are faithless, as we are like David in committing adultery in our hearts, as we are like David in committing murder by being angry with people, as we are like Abraham in lying to others, may we find at the cross of Christ one who is faithful despite our faithfulness. I pray you'd find us always repentant and sorrowful for our own sin fully confessing it and admitting it as they did in Nehemiah chapter 9 and seeing you prove yourself to be faithful as you always will be. I'm thankful for the verse, Psalm 100 verse 5, His faithfulness endures to all generations. That includes us and our generation. And I thank you for your faithfulness. would pray that we would always look to Him who was faithful, Christ Jesus, who died for our sins. May that thrill us and overjoy us and give us strength of the Lord. It's in whose name we pray. Amen.